So we continue again in the book of James. So we'll be in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verse 12 this morning. James 1, 12. And as you think about work, what reward do you work for? What motivates you to show up for work? And that's the reality of work, isn't it, right? There there has to be something to motivate us to do it. Uh, we seek some reward in it. And typically, right, if you would ask the average person, what is the reward they work for? Uh, they're going to say money, right? They're going to say uh, the ability to uh, buy the things they want to buy, uh, do the things they want to do, uh, whatever it may be, right? Whatever they're they're seeking in that. They're looking for the reward of work. It may be, and I think there are some occasions or or for some people, that the reason they work is for the reward of it itself, right? They they work for the reward of work, Uh, and we might call those people crazy or unhinged, uh, but there are them, they are out there, right? That sounded a bit too X-Files-y, right? They're they're out there. Uh, Maybe they are strange and alien, but there is some reward for work, right? There is some reward for work. And we may think of many things in our, in our lives about the context here of reward for it, right? Why do we do certain things for the reward of it? Or why do we engage in certain hobbies that we engage in, right? There's some reward we are seeking in it. Uh, sometimes those rewards of, of what we do may be far into the future. Why do we raise children the way in which we raise them, right? We're looking for a reward in that. And even though, right, as they're a little infant baby and they can't do anything and we're pouring all this work into them, right, we're looking forward to the future when they can stand on their own. Maybe we're looking forward to the future when when we're old and unable to take care of ourselves. We'll have someone who will take care of us, right? There's some reward uh, we are looking forward to in the future. And those rewards are present motivations for us to continue, right? If I knew that at my job that they didn't have the money to pay me at my next paycheck period, guess what I would not be doing very much of? Work. Because I know there's no reward in it, right? I know there's no, there's, there's no present motivation to continue striving to continue moving forward. Now, when we talk about this issue of motivation of reward, Right, when we talk about the balance of this here, that there are times when we can go too far in the anticipation of the, of the reward, uh, that we miss what we're doing, that we, um, it, so to say it this way, right? Uh, if we cannot, uh, attain an immediate reward, then we don't do it. What immediate reward is there to cleaning the bathroom? There's not much, so we may not do it. But there's certainly consequence if we don't, right? There's consequence that builds up if we fail to continue to do these things. Uh, so, so the problem is, and uh, motivation is such, uh, and especially as we think about motivating uh, the younger generation, uh, we have to consider the, this issue. Uh, we live in an immediate society. What happens if you drive up to the McDonald's window and then they tell you pull forward into the first slot and you have to wait for your reward of, of a Big Mac, of your crazy McRib. Yeah. 
I say crazy. Maybe, you know, maybe you really love them. I'm sorry if I offended you. Uh, right? So if there's no reward in or immediate reward in doing it, we don't do it. And that's going too far, right? But there's a, a balance in the other way that we can go too far in thinking that this issue of reward should never come up in the discussion. Right, that we should just do things because they need to be done and not because we're being rewarded for them. And we'll get into the reality of that here in the scripture today. Because in God's word, there is reward. For the faithful follower of Christ, there is reward. There is a reward received by the believer. Or, as we are going to see in James 1.12 this morning, eternal life is the reward for those who persevere. Eternal life is the reward for those who persevere. So let us uh, read our verse this morning out of James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So James is writing to instruct the church, to instruct believers. He wants them to be able to withstand in the evil day. Right? That's everything that we have seen thus far in the book of James has been centered around this issue of testing, trial, temptation. How do we face these matters of life with faithfulness, stand firm, and live for God. Right? There are a number of practical matters that James is dealing with uh, that they should attend to. And so we could, for instance, go, right? The opening uh, kind of salvo, the opening paragraph of the book of James, after the greeting is uh, two through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is something, this is one of the major themes of the book of James, is this issue of trials, of standing steadfast. And James wants those whom he is writing to, to be fully mature believers. He wants them to stand fast. He wants them to be able to consider the trials that they are experiencing, the trials of famine or poverty, uh, or of various kinds, right? Whatever they may be experiencing, suffering and persecution, whatever it may be, that they may view those issues with joy because they know that those trials, those situations are producing in them eternal life, preparing them for eternal life, that they're really for their benefit, even though from an outward perspective, those things may not look to be for their benefit. And as James has continued in the intervening verses, uh, you know, in verses 5 through 11, he has been talking about dealing with this issue, this, this thread, this theme of trials, standing firm, uh, and holding to the faith. And we come to our passage today, and in many ways he's reprising what he has already said. He is uh, saying that there is joy in trials because these trials work in us as steadfastness and endurance which will not be forgotten by God. And so today I want us to consider this verse under three headings. The steadfast man, the crown of reward, 
and the promise of God. The steadfast man, the crown of reward, and the promise of God. And so let's consider first the steadfast man. Again, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed, James says, is the man who reigns steadfast, the man who endures. And this word blessed comes with it certain weight, right? It comes with certain expectations, especially even within the scripture itself. When we hear that word, we probably think of maybe some of the significant passage where we see blessed is. Predominantly, we might think of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The Beatitudes, blessed is. We could go to Psalm chapter 1, and we find that the blessed man is the one who doesn't follow after sinners, but rather stands firm and rooted in God, and he's like a tree planted by streams of waters, right? Who will be well watered by his faith in God. And so what are we to think of this word blessed? And even in those passages, or maybe even here, we might, uh, depending on the translation, see the word happy. Uh, but the word happy uh, is, is, doesn't fully capture what is meant by the Greek, uh, what is meant by that word there. Because happy kind of connotates, right, this temporal happiness that it's just like, well, this guy just has a smile on his face. But it's much more deeper than that. Uh, It carries with it here the connotation of someone who is fulfilled. So when we see the word blessed, (laughs) blessed, we're talking about someone who is fulfilled, who is living up to their potential, their God-created potential. We could think of blessed, for instance, as Adam in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Adam was blessed because he was living up to his God-given, God-created potential. Living as he ought to be living. And that's what we're anticipating, right? That's what we're looking forward to. So when we see this in our passage, uh, we, we have to think of this again as this it's, it has with it this eschatological bent, which is just a big fancy theological word to say end times bent. Right? When will we be blessed? When we receive the crown of life. When will that happen? At the end of days, at the time of the judgment. And we'll, we'll talk about that reward of the crown of life here. We'll unpack that in a little bit. But we see here, right, this blessing to be blessed is to receive something, a reward. It's tied to something. And indeed, if we went to the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll read that for us out of Matthew 5, 3 through 12, the Beatitudes, right, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, we see this pattern. Someone is blessed, and as they live up to that, uh, that calling, that, that, uh, reality, they receive a reward. So, so notice this, right? As I read through here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they uh, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Did you notice that pattern? Blessed are, here's their reward. They find their matching reward. And notice that James seems to pick up on this, right? He seems to borrow this kind of um, this kind of language, this kind of pattern uh, from the Beatitudes because he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then dot, 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 he will receive the crown of life. Right? Blessed reward. And who is it that James says is blessed? Is it everyone? Right? He was just talking about the, the lowly brother, the poor brother in Christ, and the rich brother in Christ. Are those the ones who are blessed? Is it anybody who is rich or anybody who is poor? What does James say? It's the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's the man who endures trial. It's the man who endures the testing that comes his way. It's the man who remains steadfast. Or as James has already said it uh, in this way in James 1.4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So who is it that is blessed? The one who is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Don't we want to be that, right? Don't we want to aim for that? Doesn't that sound like a, a good disposition to have, that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? It's the man who endures trial. And that word here for trial is the same one we see in verse 2. And again, it has the same kind of semantic range to the same uh, way that we could translate it from trial to temptation. And which is to be preferred? It could be these external trials, these various kinds of trials, or it could also mean temptations as to sin. And we get into that in the next passage. And so I think context is here and the, how we translate that word is dependent upon the context is again it probably is best to understand this word as trial so we're talking about just these various external things that happen uh, because this is the one who endures trials and temptation certainly is a trial but the end is the same no matter which way you view this word right if you're talking about the various trials of life if you endure through those if you remain faithful through those or even if you're talking about the fight against temptation, the one who endures, the one who remains, the one who stands the test is blessed. And this then raises the important question, right? How do we remain steadfast? If you and I want to be blessed, how do we do that? How do we, how do we meet the, the challenge here that is laid, right? To, to remain steadfast under trial. How do we endure trials and the temptations of life? Again, James has already given us the answer in this letter. We looked at it in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James has told us, how do we face trial? By the wisdom of God. It is God's wisdom which enables us to understand what faithfulness is in a given matter. Wisdom takes the knowledge of God 
and applies it to the circumstance before us. And just so we're clear to that, right, James uses this language of wisdom in the same way that Paul uses the language of the Holy Spirit. We could look at, for instance, Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So James and Paul are really talking about the same thing, right? Wisdom comes from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is wisdom, right? It is wise, is all wise. We know Jesus in, in the Gospels, right, says, go to God and ask, and he will give you good gifts. And what is the best gift uh, that he could give us? The book of Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit. Right, so, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about wisdom. This is what enables us to endure the trial. How is it that we can remain steadfast? It is the wisdom of God. It is the Spirit of God in us that enables us to stand in the midst of trial, to endure, and to receive the crown of life. So we need the power and the wisdom of God. We need God's help. We need to pray to God and ask for his help. And I would just ask that question of you. How often do you do that, Christian? How often do you go to God and say, God, I need your help this day to faithfully face the circumstances that are before me? I need your help this day to be able to stand and endure the trial, even of those things I don't even know what will happen. God, I don't know what's going to happen this day. And James deals with that too later on when he says, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Like, God, I don't know what's going to happen this day, and I'm, I need your spirit, your strength, your wisdom to be able to face the challenges and the circumstances of this day. How often do you pray that for yourself in the morning? How often do you pray that for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I pray that for you. May God be gracious to give us the strength to meet the trials we will meet this day. And it is only the one who endures, who perseveres, that is called blessed. All right, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, they alone will receive the crown of reward. So let's consider that next. Secondly, here, the crown of reward. Again, so when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The one who is blessed is the one who stands the trial because he will receive the crown of life. Now, this crown is not likely what we first think of when we hear that word, right? When we hear the word crown, we probably think gold and jewels, right? Gold and gemstones. Uh, We might think if you're old enough, or if you take an interest in the royal family of England, you might think of the crown that the queen wears from time to time right this this royal uh extremely heavy uh that's a fun fact about it it's extremely heavy because gold is a heavy metal and a lot of gold is a lot of heavy right so uh you have to have some very strong neck muscles or you know you, you might just collapse i guess i don't know uh so uh we might think of that 
But James here is probably not, probably does not have that in mind. What he probably has in mind is the laurel wreath, which is this interwoven uh, branches of, of leaves with leaves on it, which would be given to the victor in athletic competition in his day. And this crown is a fitting picture because elsewhere in scripture, we, we have both of these things and, and Paul uses both of these things, uh, to, uh, to describe, uh, the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life is an athletic event. For instance, we could go to Hebrews 12.1, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run the race, the author of Hebrews says, and throw off those things that will hinder that race. Or again, Paul, again, he gives us this clearest picture in 1 Corinthians 9. 24 to 25, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. He, he says here, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Right? Paul says, Runners, right? Runners in these games, runners in these athletic, athletic events, they do what they do. They strive for what they strive for. They train and discipline their body. They, they practice self-control in all things because that's what it takes to win an athletic event. Self-control in all things. And they do it to obtain a prize, but it's perishable. Right, this laurel wreath, which would have been made of fresh branches, fresh branches at some point are cut off from the tree. They're going to die. It's going to wither. It's going to lose its glory and shine. But Paul says, "We an imperishable. The crown of life is imperishable. It's eternal. How does a Christian run to win the prize? Right? He says, "Run that you may obtain it." Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Well, Hebrews tells us that, right? Laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. James says it here. Remain steadfast. Endure. When trials come, don't give up. But discipline yourself. Practice self-control in all things. And continue forward. When the trials of life come, when temptations come, do not fail, do not fall, rather be faithful. Be faithful. Right? The crown we receive, the reward is not a perishable crown. It's eternal life. The remarkable thing about the crown of reward is the grandness of it. Do you, do you comprehend something of that? Right? It's not just this little participation trophy that everyone gets. It's not just this little bobble that God has for some people. It's a crown of life. It's glorious. Jesus says something of what it costs uh, when he writes to the church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation. 
in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Notice here that this crown of life comes up again. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And hold that in mind there, death and life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And what is that second death? The final judgment in which those who are not written in the book of life be cast forever into the lake of fire. Be cast forever into hell. Jesus says to this church, the devil is about to bring testing upon you, but remain firm, stand the test, remain steadfast, endure, be faithful unto until it gets uncomfortable. Until uh, you've had enough. That's not what he says. He says, be faithful unto death, and then I will give you the crown of life. And isn't that an interesting contrast? In death, there is life, but only for the Christian. And notice the encouragement he gives them at the outset in verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Who can give us the crown of life, but he who himself is life. The blessed man is the one who receives the reward, eternal life. And eternal life is the reward for those who persevere. But for those who are outside of Christ, there is no hope of eternal life. There is only the hope of judgment. The only thing that remains for the one who fails to stand the test, fails to persevere, fails to remain steadfast, fails to put to death the deeds of the body, the only thing that remains is the second death, final judgment, and cast forever from the grace of God and the mercy of God. God says that those who live in the, in the flesh, in Romans 7, 5, for instance, those who live in the flesh bear fruit for death. Track it through the book of Romans. And you find again and again, Paul says that the end of death The maturation of sin is death. Or even James will say it here in verse 15 of chapter 1. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Unfaithfulness always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. The person who does not have the spirit of wisdom can do no good thing. Romans fourteen twenty three. right? We, we, we have to understand this. And so uh, I want to emphasize this. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, without faith in Christ, without trusting and believing God, there is only death. Romans 14.23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And what does sin bring? Death. Paul's uh, speaking here of this issue of meat, uh, sacrifice to idols, and those who have weaker consciences who can't eat it because they feel as though they're engaging in some worship of these false idols if they eat this meat sacrifice to it. And Paul says it's not really the issue. The issue, you can eat the meat sacrifice to idols because they're, they're nothing, they're meaningless, and you're not engaging in anything. And he says, though, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because your conscience has accused you. And you fail to remain steadfast. But notice that this very particular situation he deals with, he gives a much broader principle at the end of it. He says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If what you do does not proceed from faith, it is sin. If you face the trials of life without faith, it is sin. It doesn't matter the outcome. Like, do we understand that, right? It doesn't matter if in that moment you're tempted by the Twinkie and you remain steadfast and you don't eat the Twinkie because if it doesn't proceed from faith, it's sin. And I know that's a silly example. Maybe it's not so silly, but the the question is, the matter is, how do we receive the crown of reward? It's through faith. Do you trust in God? Do you have faith in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that when God says that your sins are forgiven and you are justified in his sight forever, that that is true, that that is so? Do you entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good? We must trust God in all things. Even in the midst of the most difficult of trials, endurance itself comes from our faith in God. Notice that those are tied together. Without faith, we cannot endure. And if we don't endure, we don't have faith. So, remain steadfast. And as the steadfast man receives the crown of reward, we must recognize that this is the promise of God. That's why faith is so vital. It is the promise of God. And so thirdly, let us see that this morning, the promise of God. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God has promised that to those who love him, that they will receive a reward. They will be, they will be the blessed ones. And in this way, we ask the question, who is, who is the blessed one? Well, all true Christians are the blessed one. Because all true Christians, those who love him, will receive the crown of life. So, do you want to know if you're going to receive the crown of life? Do you love God and keep his commandments? Do you believe in God? Do you trust in him? Do you trust in his promises? And you could compare 1 John 5, 3 here 
For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and and his commandments are not burdensome. At the outset, I suggested that there are some who think that seeking reward or having reward as a motivation is is a bad thing. And really, this derives from Kantian ethics. Uh, Immanuel Kant, who posited this idea of a philosophical uh, framework, an ethical framework that says for you to do right is to know that it is to do right. And so do it. Uh, and I'm not going to try and wax too philosophical here, but but it's this idea that Christian has a duty, a duty, a moral duty to do good. And that should be it. That should be the motivation. You have a moral duty, do it. So it's good to do good, so do good. I right, got that. I'll say that one. It's good to do good, so do good. <clears throat> but this isn't the tenor of the scripture. Right? This is not what the Bible says. It's not what this passage says here, right? Rewards are not antithetical to our motivation to trust God and to obey his commandments. Consider, for instance, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 1. And Matthew 6 has a bunch of these examples. We're not going to go through them all. I just want to point out one. Uh, after, after today, this afternoon, read through Matthew 6, 1 and see if this pattern holds true. Matthew 6, 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Excuse me. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Practice your righteousness, but not before other people. And if you practice your righteousness, not before other people, you will have a reward from your Father in heaven. Again, go through, go through that passage and you'll see it again and again. When it comes to fasting, giving, uh, praying, all these things, all these uh, parts, practices of obedience to God, we find reward for the one who does them before God, for God, not for other people. The reward for practicing righteous before, righteousness before others is what? The praise of others. How long does that last? Not very long. And we even see, right, the, the reward of the Christian who practices his faith before God comes from the Father. And we aren't really told what that reward is. Not in specific terms, certainly not in that passage, but we can ascertain some of it, right? Eternal life, the crown of life. Um, Jesus talks about storing up treasures for yourselves in heaven. And so we know that something of this reward is not not always, certainly not predominantly and not primarily, uh, earthly treasures. So when we're talking about the reward of God, we're not necessarily talking about earthly temporal rewards. But does God give earthly temporal rewards to his people for their obedience? Yeah, we see that. God blesses his people. Look at the book of Job. Did God bless Job? Says it, right? God bless Job. So let's dispense with this notion that we serve God out of this moral impetus that says we do good to do good because it's good. It's not true. It's not scriptural, at least. Immanuel Kant may have had some good ideas about philosophy and ethics, but they're not biblical ethics. They're not scriptural ethics. The scriptural ethic is, yes, obey God, serve God, because God is good. Because good is good serve God, 
And because he good, give, gives good gifts to those who love him and keep his commandments. God delights to give his children good gifts. Jesus says that. Believe it. Don't to go too far, though, right? That, the impetus behind that is, uh, or the, the, the correction behind that is, we don't want to go so far that we believe as the health, wealth, and prosperity uh, preachers and, and believers do that, that to believe God, to obey his commands, is like a, he's like a magic genie all of a sudden, and he'll give us whatever we want. I'm not saying, right, put $100 in the offering plate, and you're going to have a $1,000 check in the mail to you this week. That's not, that's not the scriptures. But also don't think that obedience to God gets you nothing. It does. God says it. Psalm 85, 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Psalm 85, 12. The Lord will give what is good. And where do we see the promise of God for eternal life, right? So, so where do we get this idea of the crown of life, eternal life, this reward? Most famously, John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And also just for... Um, to extrapolate a little bit of that there in verse 18 of that, who has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does that mean? Is it, it's not just saying that I believe that Jesus' name is Jesus' name. But when we talk about name in the Scripture, right, we're talking about the character, the, the person. And so to say that we don't believe in the name of the only Son of God is to saying we don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. We don't believe he is faithful and true. We don't believe that he is the Lord God. So that's why they're condemned. It's not just because they didn't know the name of Jesus, but it's because they don't trust that he is who he says he is. But if you believe in Christ Jesus as the Son of God, the Father promises eternal life. This is the gift of God that Christ Jesus came to give, right? Eternal life. This is the reward of those who remain steadfast under trial. Eternal life. The promise of eternal life was fulfilled by the Son of God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 19-20. 2 Corinthians 1, 19-20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for his glory. It is Christ Jesus who fulfilled the law. It is Christ Jesus who offered to us the hope of eternal life, of salvation, of restoration. All the promises of God are met in Christ Jesus. Without Christ, there is no hope. There is no life. There is only the promise of judgment. And so James writes here, he writes to encourage the church to persevere, to remain steadfast, right? Why? Why count it all joy? Because we know that at the end of our endurance of whatever the various trials of life we may meet is a crown of life, is a reward. Because those who love God have the promise of eternal life. And the question for you today is, will you stand the test? 
will you remain steadfast? And if you are in Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. First Peter tells us, or Second Peter tells us that. You have everything you need for life and godliness to endure the trials and temptations of life. You have all that you need in the Spirit of God to stand the test. And what you don't have, God promises to give to you. He will give generously and without reproach to all those who ask in faith. So go to God and ask him for that which you need to stand firm in the midst of trial. And again, the problem for us, brothers and sisters, is that there are times when we show a marked distrust of God. Or perhaps better said, we show a marked over-reliance on ourselves in the midst of the trials of life. And I would just encourage you, think back over the past week. When you have faced a trial, when you have faced temptation, what was your first inclination? Was it, I need to go to God and pray right now? An interesting example of that is, uh, I think, in the book of Nehemiah, uh, when he is before the king and he's mourning over what has happened in Jerusalem and the, the walls are torn down, and the king looks at him, knows that there is something wrong, and asks him, which is a dangerous position for a servant of a king to be asked, why are you downcast? What's going on? And interestingly, it, it describes how Nehemiah in that moment prays to God. So do you think this means like he got down on his knees and started praying to God, lifting up his hands, and the king's just looking on like, what's going on with this guy? No, probably not. He probably said a quick prayer in his head. And God gave him the strength and the wisdom of the words to say. Do you do that? Sometimes we know the trials we'll face. Right? Sometimes we know we're gonna, there are going to be certain circumstances that we're probably going to face this week. And we should be praying for those things, right? We should say, God, I know that this is going to be a temptation of my flesh this week. Give me strength to endure. Help me to, by your spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body. But there are other times when we don't have that uh, kind of benefit of, of knowing ahead of time. And so even in the midst, when, when a circumstance comes up that you need to be faithful in, what's your inclination? Trust yourself and it'll work out. Or do you go to God and pray? How often do you pray to God asking for his help? Or how often do you just forge ahead, stumbling and maybe even failing? What would your battle against sin, against temptation, look like if you actually asked God for help more? Or if you even asked him at all? Let's go to him. And here's the blessed, the the blessed work of God, the blessed promise of God, he won't forsake you. He won't turn you away. He won't say, oh, that's the third time you've asked me this week for help against that temptation. I'm not doing it. Figure it out yourself. No, God gives generously to all without reproach. He won't reject those who come to him in the confidence of Christ asking for grace and mercy. And realize that what is waiting for you at the end of the travail of life is reward. God promises life to you, believer. He promises that all that has happened, is happening, and will happen has this great end at its, at its climax, at its conclusion. A crown of life. That it's serving 
to fit you for heaven. Do you realize that? The trials of this life are serving to fit you for heaven if you endure, if you remain steadfast. Endure because the prize of Christ. Endure because God is working in you such steadfastness. If you are really His, endure because it's worth it. It's better than any treasure hidden in a field, or it's better than going to the marketplace and finding this one pearl that seems like better than all the rest. Endure because it's wonderful and grand, the reward that is waiting for you. But for those who don't believe in Christ as the Son of God, those of you who would rather feed the sinfulness of your flesh, who would rather seek your own way rather than seek God's way, understand that the only reward waiting for you is death. All those who do not have faith in God will face the fruit of their sin, death. It is Christ Jesus alone who makes possible the forgiveness of sins. It is Christ alone who can save you from that death. God sent Jesus, His only Son, into the world to bear the judgment for His people's sins. You can receive the crown of life if you love God, if you love Jesus, if you love the Holy Spirit. So seek the reward of eternal life, which can only be found in Christ. Repent, turn from your sins. Believe in Jesus and be saved. And then you will know what it means to be blessed. Then you will know the love of God towards you. So trust in Christ and endure the trial, because when you have stood the test, you will without a doubt receive the gift of promised eternal life. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would work in us faithfulness. Father, that we would stand the test, that we would be, be steadfast and endure in the face of all that we, that we will uh, face this week. God, we, we may know some of the things that we may struggle with, but there are such things before us that we know not. And unless you help us, unless you give us wisdom, unless you give us your spirit, God, we can't do it on our own. And so we will fail and fall. And so, Father, we pray for your work to be made complete in us. You who began a good work in us, that you would bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That we who have entrusted ourselves to you, you are faithful to keep all that we have entrusted to you. And Father, that if we entrust our souls unto you, that you will keep them. You will hold them fast. Father, they will be in your hand and we will never pass out of it. We will be in our Savior's hand and certainly nothing will ever loose us from your grasp. So, Father, work in us. Whatever state we may be in this, this day. Father, work in us that we would understand and see the reward before us. The prize that motivates us. Not solely, uh, not solely those things. But Lord, even that greatest of prizes. To be with you for all eternity. To see you in your glory. To see the Lamb who is living but looks slain. 
to see and understand with clear vision all of your purposes and promises. Oh, Father, we pray that we would be able to endure, that we would be faithful even unto death, and so receive the crown of life. Father, help us, we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.